Welcome to the Persisters Can Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lugowitz. Today's certified persister is Nicole Decord. Nicole grew up in Scarborough, Ontario in a very political family. Her father served as a city councillor from the time she was two years old, and her mother served as a returning officer and local campaign manager in multiple elections. She served as an election volunteer in multiple campaigns before serving as a legislative assistant to an MPP and then outreach assistant to opposition leader Dalton McGuinty. Ahead of the 2003 campaign, she would serve as director of operations for the Ontario Liberal Party and, after helping win a majority government, she became its executive director. In government, Nicole served as a senior operations advisor, director of operations, and executive director for strategic planning in several government ministries, as well as a senior manager of operations in the Premier's office. Nicole joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to be the executive director of a political party, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. Thanks for joining me, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was that experience like? Yeah, I grew up in Scarborough uh, in the 1970s. So you can kind of guess my age from there. And it was a it was a great experience. My dad was a city councillor right when Scarborough uh, sort of was in the midst of developing and growing and, you know, creating a lot of subdivisions, a lot of uh, uh, smaller communities from farm fields. And so I had a great childhood, um, wonderful community, grew up with my mom and my dad and my two brothers. So I guess through your father being a counselor that you were sort of introduced to politics from a pretty young age, how did you sort of first get involved? Was it through his campaigns or was it, you know, through some other avenue? Yeah, I grew up, so I grew up in a very political household. My, like I said, my dad was first elected to Scarborough City Council when I was two. In fact, my younger brother was born on the day he first got elected and <laughs> they were gonna name him Victor, but instead they called him David. <laughs> and, uh, and it was it was really interesting. And then my mother was actually, she was sometimes a local returning officer. She was a stay-at-home mom when I was young and sometimes a campaign manager for different politicians. So my parents grew up in the uh, Liberal Party in the same way that I ended up getting involved in the party. So their friends, their, you know, community, um, that was kind of their network and their social circles in Scarborough. Um, so I really just kind of absorbed it, right? I had everything from, you know, I remember as a kid, we had a finished basement and every election, you know, you go down to the basement and there's giant maps on the wall. And back yep. then you put a thumbtack in where the signs, you know, on every house, yep. the yep. sign went up on. We had, I mean, we didn't, nobody rented a campaign office then, not for a, a you know, council seat. So we had people right. coming and going in the house. Um, my big, my broader family, my grandfather was a school board trustee in Scarborough, Catholic school board trustee. And uh, my mom's family is a very, you know, every family gathering everyone's talking about politics and stuff like that so i had that interest as a kid and growing up and then when i was applying for university i really had no idea what i wanted to do and so i applied to three different programs at three different universities and one of them was wilfrid laurier where i applied for political science and i just thought i know a lot about politics i think this would be interesting i i had no idea what i wanted to do with my life but 
So from there, you went into your first job in politics. You were a legislative assistant, and this was in the lead up to the 1999 election. Um, and then you also served as the outreach assistant to the leader of the official opposition, which at the time was Dalton McGuinty, uh, between 1999 and 2002. So that 1999 election, of course, Dalton McGuinty and the Liberals did not win. Can you talk about how different those roles were as roles, but also in the, you know, pre-election period up to 1999 and then the pre-election period up to the successful 2003 election. Right. So, and you know, if you take it a step back, uh, when I graduated from university, I didn't have a job yet. So I came home and our, my parents' best friends were um, Kay and Jerry Phillips. And as you know, Jerry Phillips is an MPP. And yes, so I, I came home from university. I still had no idea what I wanted to do. And my parents said, well, if you don't have a job yet, you're going to go volunteer on Jerry's campaign. So they sent me off. And that was my first actual campaign experience of, you know, doing doing a campaign. I remember my mom saying to me, I said, well, what am I going to do? What's my title going to be? My mom said, you're going to walk into the campaign office and you're going to do whatever everybody tells you to do. And if it's exactly. coffee and clean out the garbages, <laughs> that's what you're going to do. And I was like, okay. And so it was, and it turned out to be a really fun, great experience. So yes, you're right. Then after that, I started volunteering on different campaigns and I volunteered for um, David Kaplan in a by-election in 1997. Right, right. So I was, I was working not in politics at the time. I'd gotten my first job um, in something different. And I had met David actually at an event that Jerry Phillips Writing Association had held. And he had asked me to volunteer in his by-election. And it was, you know, it was so much fun. Campaigns can be so much fun. And after that, he got elected and he asked me to come to Queen's Park to be his legislative assistant. So that was my first job. I had no idea what a legislative assistant was. I had no clue. And, you know, I think, as you know, nobody trains you for really, if you work as a political staffer, right, there's, no, there's no training when you get there, you, you just show up and get stuff done. And, you know, and, and you've got experience Start putting a binder together. together. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I've done the job before. So, you know, a lot of that role, um, as a legislative assistant was, he was the critic for uh, for youth and children. So we met with different stakeholders. We tried to understand their issues. You know, I, a lot of it was I set up meetings. I, you know, uh, did research on things, uh, helped organize his, you know, his, um, his calendar, both in the riding and at Queens Park, just sort of simple things like that. Um, and then I, ended up the, so we went into the 1999 election and that was really interesting because we were going into an election. I, I don't know how, I don't, people don't think about what happens in elections in the past. So I don't know how much you remember of this, but uh, there had been redistribution. So David's right. riding merged with the riding of a very popular cabinet minister named Dave Johnson. He was a minister of education. He was, um, from the same area and had been elected pretty handily. So we went into that um, election in 1999. Uh, it was sort of a David and Goliath scenario on uh, David versus the David cabinet minister. <laughs> and in an election where the liberals did not win government, David Kaplan won his seat. After that, I actually moved to the leader's office in opposition 
and I worked in the outreach uh, department with the outreach team. And again, you know, when you're in opposition, nobody is, I guess you're talking about what's, you know, what are those roles like, right? When you're in opposition, the public's not really paying a lot of attention to you. The media is not paying a lot of attention to you. You know, it's, it's really getting out there on the ground and doing the really hard work you need to do to be ready to form government, right? So you're meeting, you know, you're meeting and speaking with party, you know, liberal party members, you're speaking with different stakeholders, you're trying to educate yourself about all the issues, and you're really trying to build the coalition of supporters that you need to be successful in election. So, you know, for me, 1999 was focused on very much one riding, like I wasn't really doing a whole of government campaign, but from 99 to 2003, my role was more around, you know, whole of government and getting ready for that 2003 election. You know, in the lead up to that campaign, you were busy doing that work. And then the McGuinty Liberals won majority government, uh, defeating the Conservatives who had been there for the previous two terms. And they ended up actually having more votes than any other party had won in Ontario history to that point. Only other one other leader has done, you know, over two million votes, and that was Doug Ford in 2018. So it was a huge, a huge landslide. Um, as the team made the transition to government, though, you also moved into a new role at the party office as executive director. Can you talk about what an executive director is and, and what you do in that role? Yeah, so I actually moved to the Liberal Party office um, about a year before the election from uh, the leader's office over to the party office. And just so that folks understand, the Ontario Liberal Party office is not working in government. It is a separate and distinct organization. It's, you know, it's like working at a not-for-profit, say, for example, right? It's, it's funded through fundraising. It's got a volunteer base. It's got a membership base. Um, and it really has nothing to do directly with running the government. <clears throat> so that right. role that I was playing in outreach before then in the, in the leader's office, that was a government role. But when I moved to the Liberal Party office before the election, that was the Liberal Party political role. And that was really, you know, getting ready for that 2003 campaign election. And as director of operations, I did a lot of work getting the central campaign office ready and um, and uh, getting all the logistics set up for that and, and working with the actual election campaign team. And yeah, it was a great election. It was a it was a big victory. Um, I think what was really interesting about it, when I look back, it was, you know, the work, the work that needs to go into having a really good, really well-run campaign, that work got done, right? It was a really intense lead up to that 2003 campaign. And what you're trying to do as a political party is you're trying to, you never know what can happen during a campaign. So that phrase campaign matters, like they do, really campaigns matter. <laughs> But you're trying to get all the other stars aligned, right? So you're trying to do everything else really well, train your volunteers, get your candidates in place, all of those different things. So I was part of a lot of that in the uh, in the 2003 election. Once the election was over and we had been successful and I became the executive director, what you're trying to do in that role is the, we, you know, we call it the party office, which I think most people would go, oh, this sounds like a big party, but uh, at the party, <laughs> you know, you're now what you're trying to do is you're trying to align 
the role of the volunteer base of the party, riding right. presidents, members, volunteers, with what's happening in government, right? So you're trying to keep your supporters engaged and active and, you know, involved. I mean, all these people who worked so hard to get the government that they wanted elected, and now they want to see the results of that, right? So I, as executive director, I, you know, you're overseeing and managing the, the party on a day-to-day -day basis, but also coordinating with the government and the premier's office and others um, to just kind of align um, and integrate the volunteer pace of the party into the into the sort of you know actions of the government I guess would be the way to say it. So it's a it's a really huge role though. You know I think people from the outside whether they're volunteers or members within the party they don't necessarily understand the full scope of it. So you're dealing with you know, all the party's finances, you're managing the organizers, you're supporting riding associations and local volunteers, you're working with the leaders team at Queen's Park. There's just everything that is happening in the party is ultimately something that you're working on and responsible for. Of course, you have a team under you that you're working with, but you're the one sort of leading the charge on that and, you know, sort of being answerable to make sure all of those different things are happening. Can you talk about what the day to day sort of work looked like? what your team was structured as, you know, those kind yeah. of considerations of, of what it looked like being there at that time. Yeah. So there, you know, we had um, some of the key functions of the Liberal Party office. Finance is a really, really big part. And we deal with, um, you know, legislation that needs to be complied with. And it is, uh, you know, you, you know, easy to for political parties in general to make mistakes on complying with legislation related to their finance. And then all of a sudden they're on the front page of the news. So that's a really big thing behind the scenes that you have to really do with care and caution and precision and, um, you know, and, and compliance with proper legislation. So it's actually bigger than, than people think. It's not just collecting checks from fundraisers and then paying bills that the, that, you know, the party spends money on. We have- so important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's the membership team and, you know, all the people that sign up to be part of the party and making sure that uh, they're all in our systems, that they're engaged locally with the right um, riding associations. Um, and then you've got sort of an outreach staff that kind of complements that. And um, it's really easy for someone to, you know, for a political party to have people join as a member and then nobody hears from them right like that person nobody that person doesn't hear from anyone or you know they're not getting connected or they're not sort of being tapped into to say okay now that you've raised your hand you've said you want to be a member like here's all the different ways that you can get engaged so it's easy to let that go by the wayside when you know there's so many things going on so you really have to pay attention to that piece um so those are really the primary functions and then or hosting like we organized all the events so the party has an annual general meeting and then they had these other conferences called provincial councils and that's when you're bringing the party together and I think one of the things that's really interesting with the role is the piece around sort of liaison the liaison with Queen's Park and figuring out when do politicians when are they sort of serving in their government capacity and it's not appropriate for the for you know political parties to be involved in that right and when are they serving in their capacity as, you know, 
the elected member for the Liberal Party for a riding? Or, you know, how do you how do you bridge the gap between the pure government side of everything and the, you know, volunteer based political party side of things? So we also did a lot of coordination, you know, if the premier, for example, if Premier McGinty wanted to get out and, you know, meet party volunteers and local ridings and, you know, so you're working with folks at Queens Park to, you know, when you're hosting local barbecues and, you know, and even meeting with, you know, maybe not stakeholders that are specific to government, but you've got stakeholders on the party side, right? You've got stakeholders who have helped from a political lens that you want to make sure there's engagement with. So it's an interesting balancing act. And you're doing everything. You're, I mean, it's a four-year runway to the next election, right? It's a cycle. That's, you know, that's politics, especially right. when you're at the Liberal Party office. That's basically how it goes. You're, you're starting the four-year cycle again, and it's all a build-up to the next election. But something I think about all the time, you know, in the time that I was at the party office as an employee, but also as just, you know, a volunteer in, in later years doing various things is the day after the election is the day the next election's work starts. Yeah. And it is, yes. you know, four years of more of that. Um, can you talk about what that sort of prep looked like? You know, you've just won this huge majority. Everyone's really focused on government, but at the party office, you need to stay focused on staying engaged with local volunteers and riding associations and making sure, you know, they have the premier's ear, the leader's ear in this case. Political parties get elected on their political strengths and their political relationships. And then they go into government and are, you know, rightly focused on they need to be doing there. And then they sort of forget about the political side of it. And then it starts to decay. Their supporters, yes. you know, don't feel heard. They feel a little left behind. Maybe they start thinking they're only there to be asked for money, which I think is probably the number one complaint of any party <laughs> member in any party. So can you, yeah. can you talk about, you know, that immediate post-election phase of how to maintain momentum politically? Yeah, the, it, it, so the, it is it is very, very easy once a political party wins government to get complacent about um, sort of the regular everyday volunteers that help to make that happen. And frankly, who um, keep the party alive and active and running and when you're not in government, right? It is so easy to become complacent because suddenly in government, you've got these armies of people who work for the government and, and, and you know, if they're political staffers, they're partisan, that's okay. You know, they're not ministry officials. That's what they're supposed to be. Um, and so much moves into the hands of those folks. So for example, when you're not in government, parties are often having very robust policy conferences and policy discussions. Where do we stand on this? Where do we stand on that? And oftentimes when a political party, and this is every political party, um, wins government, suddenly it is your premier and your cabinet and, you know, and other folks that are making more of the policy decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. So that, you know, that the, the, there's a shift in the, you know, in the root of some of those things. So it goes back, I made a comment earlier, about you know, I, I feel like but this is every, almost every job in politics. Nobody trains you. Nobody teaches you how to do this. You learn from all different people that are around you and surrounding you. Right. Many of them have done these roles and have done it really well. And lots of them have done these roles and have done them very poorly and made big mistakes or, just you know 
weren't talented and didn't do a good job. That's the nature of a business that doesn't have a professional development program in place, right? So I think, you know, one of the things that you need, and it, you know, I know we're going to be talking about women in these roles as well. You certainly need some confidence in your intuition. You need some creativity. You need to be able to look at things and say, okay, just because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean it works, yes. right? How can we be, you know, what can we do differently? How can we be a bit more innovative? And then you have to combine that actually with the history and with the, you know, you got to educate yourself. Well, why have we been doing things a certain way? Maybe there's a piece you're missing. Like one of the really big pieces of being the executive director is you are navigating and enforcing the, the constitution of your party, right? right and that's right. a constitution that has grown and developed over many, 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 many years, the members have voted on it. This is what the party believes in. It's kind of your Bible on how we operate. And you can easily look at something in the constitution and say, I don't understand why that is this way. It doesn't make any sense. And, but maybe if you understand the context and the history, you can sort of figure it out, right? So, so there's a lot of skills like that. You need a lot of um, soft skills in, 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 obviously people skills are a huge part of it. There are certainly, and I know you've come across people too in politics who, you know, are, are, there's lots of really wonderful people. And there's some people who are not and they're, and they're, and they're unkind and they don't realize that they really need to treat people well. And that's one of the other pieces around this dynamic we're talking about, about the political party and the, you know, unpaid volunteers versus, you know, government and staff who work there, you know, just remembering that all of these people that work so hard in elections, they don't they don't get anything you know they don't get any benefit other than they fundamentally believed in something it was very important and they gave of their own time and their own talents to try to make a difference and respecting that and really respecting you know who those people are and what they mean to a political party are really important and thanking them and you know being kind and um you know, trying to make people feel welcome is another important piece. So, you know, it's, it's, there's other skills, you know, you gotta, you know, I, I, you gotta learn about finances. If you're going to be the executive director of the party, I, you know, I went right away and took courses around, you know, finance and management for non-financial managers, something like that. It's a really good um, idea. Yeah. And you need to, you need to, um, I think in any role in politics, but particularly at the party office, it's very, very under-resourced. You're really trying to, put as many pennies in the bank as you can for the election campaign. And so you need to be really well organized. You really need to maximize on your resources. You really have to be focused and sharp around what you're doing and not waste time and energy on mo and money, you know, hard skills like that, but it, it's a mix. I want to dig into the stuff you were just talking about around being kind to people, because, you know, when we first met, that was something that was a big takeaway I had from you and, I think everyone, almost everyone who's ever worked at the party office really understands the customer service nature of it and the appreciation that you have to have for, you know, the volunteers who are working in communities around the province. There sometimes can be a disconnect if you go straight into Queen's Park as a staffer and don't have that sort of relationship with the volunteer side because you don't necessarily see all of the effort being put in 
by people, as you mentioned, who are not being paid mm. for any of this work. Mm. And it was something, you know, when I made that transition, I always tried to think about of, this is really hard. This is really tiring. This is sometimes extremely painful, yeah. but I am getting paid and other people are doing this <laughs> for free. And yes. it's something, you know, that always stuck with me, um, which, you know, in this period in the party's history right now, post 2022 election, I think appreciation really needs to be at the forefront. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, how, while you were at the party office, how your team engaged with the membership, you know, what kind of training opportunities were provided mm -hmm. just back to that sort of building up the volunteer base and, and showing them that they mattered. Take it back a step. When I worked on David Kaplan's by-election in 97, um, his brother Zane was the campaign manager. One of the things we did, and this was just one of those, like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd worked on Jerry's campaign before, but that was it full time. So we had tons of volunteers in a by-election you get people from all over the place so they're not just from the riding so we had tons of volunteers right and you know we were trying to um really motivate them and really you know and i went to zane i had this idea and i said why don't we do like a thank you letter in the middle of the campaign because we knew we were going to need to like ask that. everyone for their help on election day so we're like right. this mid-campaign thank you letter and it's basically going to say just from david signed by him by hand um every letter um and we actually made him do a little comment on every single one as well um right. you know he in something personal if he could but anyway it was basically to say we just want to thank you for everything you've done so far and thank you in advance for all the work you're going to be doing for the next two weeks of the campaign and we really need you on election day and it was kind of this pre-motivation it was really successful like we had we had a really strong um numbers of volunteers on election day so thinking about things like that when i was the executive director deb matthews was the president of the party and she is a wonderful right. human being she, she is. is a very kind individual <laughs> she is an absolutely incredible person and you know her and i were talking and i said you know you've got all, we've got all these riding presidents and some of them have been around for years right i mean these are people who are you know keeping our why don't we just send a thank you letter for no particular reason, right? It's a, hi, we know you're there and we just wanna thank you. We just wanna thank you for being you and for keeping the trains running and being the, really the heart and soul of this party. And she signed, well, we actually end up doing it not for every riding president, we did it for everybody, everybody who served on the executive. So every riding, hundred and something ridings, all have a president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, and a bunch of directors. She did over a thousand letters that she signed by hand uh, and put personal comment on every rec letter, and especially when she knew someone or not, and we mailed them out to everybody. And it was, I, I guess it's just an example of, we, we heard a lot back from a lot of different party volunteers, and it just means, it means so much to anybody to for somebody to turn to them and say, I see you, right? Like, I see you. And I know what you've done and I know what you've given up to do it. I mean, in any election campaign, somebody who's coming in every day to work on a campaign, you only have like four weeks, right? When election gets called. People who show up every day, they're ditching everything else in their life for it, right? Or even somebody coming in once exactly. a week. They're ditching a day that they could have spent with their family or a day they could have exactly. spent sleeping in or, you know, watching a movie. So yeah trying to give that appreciation um i think is really critical and it's so easy to forget to do it it's so easy to take people for granted i think that's a really important part of politics and i think it's really easy to forget that 
Yeah, I, I, th I think about that a lot. There was, you know, at some point I was working on a, a letter with Brian Johns, who's the president currently, um, and it was an appreciation letter. I don't even remember when it was. Maybe it was a few years ago. <laughs> and yeah. we had made sure to say, you know, as donors, we know that you were, Brian always, you know, this is something he always says. He's like, you choose your family first, then your community, then maybe your political party comes in third there in terms of your money, your time, your effort, all those sorts of things. So every time you're choosing to give money to a political campaign or give your time to a political camp campaign, you're making a choice that you know has trade-offs in your life. And so we need to show that we really appreciate mm -hmm. the fact that you're prioritizing us. And I think that's something that can get lost. Um, I think, you know, it's definitely a conversation to be had just given low volunteer numbers um, that happened in this most recent campaign, but just, just happening in general in organizations across the board right now, you know, obviously COVID plays a part in that, but making sure people feel supported and engaged enough. I just think all the time, you know, as a party member, not only are you not being paid for this, but you're also spending hundreds of dollars when you go to a convention, <laughs> you're making hundreds yeah. of dollars. And do like, this is actually costing money, money <laughs> yeah. to be involved in a political party. So showing yep. appreciation is so crucial. And I, I'm not remotely surprised uh, Deb did that because obviously we both work for her and she's <laughs> a lovely person. That does lead mm -hmm. me to a question I, I want to talk about, which is um, the ED's relationship with executive council. So that's the body that technically governs the party. What that relationship looks like and, and how the two uh, bodies sort of coexist and how the party office supports that team. Yeah, so the Ontario Liberal Party is is effectively run by an executive council that the membership elects, right? So you've got a president, vice president, director of policy, you know, regional directors, all of that. And it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting experience to to do any job in that role. And I and and I can talk, you know, my current job right now, for example, I'm the president and CEO of right, right. Uh, an association called MedTech Canada. It's the association that represents the medical technology industry in Canada, and I report to a board of directors. And there's lots of people who have roles like that. Um, in politics, it's a little bit different because you've got a lot of political dynamics at play, right? Uh, within the within the party, but um, I was very lucky that I was originally hired under Greg Sabera. He was the president when I got hired, and then shortly after that, it was Deb Matthews. And so I got to work for really great presidents and in particular, Deb, that relationship is one of the most important things. Um, it's important to be able to, you know, it, it's, you really have to understand and find that balance between supporting the executive council, respecting the fact that they were elected from the membership to represent the membership. It is the party's executive council and the party's political party, right? And then also trying to work with, you know, Queen's Park and members of the government and elected officials and and all of, all of those um, really important folks on what they're trying to do and aligning all of that. So it's a, it's a balancing act, right? And you get really diverse opinions, really, really diverse opinions from people with very strong opinions. And so you're really navigating, you know, um, how to deal with conflict, how to uh, how to keep everyone focused, eye on the ball, like where are we going from here? What's the ultimate objective? You know, you could, you know, an executive council, I mean, 
they didn't this didn't happen much in 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 my time because of the way we structured everything but they could spend hours and hours debating you know one policy objective as opposed to like how are we going to get ridings trained for the next election things like that and so it was um you know like anyone else who reports to a board it's an interesting relationship and it's a very personal relationship and you really have to understand all the people who are at the table why they're at the table and what they're trying to do as a collective and then reminding everybody that i think the hardest part for anybody whether they're on a board or whether they're on the executive you know council of a political party is being able to take your your own hat off and putting on the hat of i am here to represent a broader group right so you got to remove your personal agenda and you got to do what's in the best interest of the party. And so a lot of it is really guiding the direction of that and trying to make sure that the executive council is governing the way it should be governing. Like it's doing the role that it was put there to play. So you were in that role for almost five years, which is actually quite a long time in politics to be in <laughs> one role, but specifically ED, because as I said, you know, I've worked with six of them um, yeah. and I was not in politics for, you know, ever. Um, so that's a really long time to serve in that role, but it also means you've got to have a really big impact on the office in the lead up to the 2007 election. Um, mm -hmm. At that time, the party was trying to do something that hadn't been done since 1937 when mitch hepburn won you know back-to-back -back governments for a liberal uh, party so it, mm -hmm. it had been a very very long time since any liberal had successfully done that and your task as you know ed of the party office was to get not only the office team prepared um but also you know volunteers in 100 plus ridings mm -hmm. uh, local executives in 100 plus writings, getting every single person who was a volunteer <laughs> and representing the Liberal Party in some way ready to win that campaign. So what does yeah. that look like? <laughs> what is yeah. that like getting ready? Well, for and, and just for context here, when the, when the 2007 election was called, I was seven and a half months pregnant with my oh, second child. Yes. So I was, you know, I was ex <laughs> extremely pregnant. Now, every campaign puts together a campaign team and you've got different individuals uh, who are responsible for different areas. So you've got somebody who's the director of tour, you've got somebody who's the director of, you know, of uh, outreach, you've got your comms team, you've got all of those pieces. I actually served in 2007 as the, um, I ran the finances. And you've got your campaign director, right? And I, so I was in charge of the finances. And I, I say in this particular role that I played then, so you're you're basically, I was working with all the different leads in the different departments to develop their budgets for the campaign and get ready for the spend. And with the campaign director, who's, you know, it was Don Guy then having, um, you know, their view on what aspects of the campaign we should be investing more or less in. And then, the, just the nightmare task of trying to control that spending during the election. Like, <laughs> That's actually the hardest job in the campaign. <laughs> it, is, it was really hard. It's really commonplace, right, for political parties after an election to all of a sudden get bills and invoices and for different things that right, nobody right. knew because you've got armies of people volunteering and out there, right? So if you're the, say you're the tour director, you've got five to six, what they call tour teams. Each yep. one's going to have four to five people. They're going all over the province throughout the whole campaign, getting events set up for the leader, getting, you know, campaign events set up 
and and they're authorizing expenditures as they go right they're booking venues for these and all these different things so just i had to spend a lot of time putting systems in place to try to get people to tell me when they were spending money and <laughs> authorize it and track it to try to come within budget um when the election was over so it's just kind of a logistical piece there's i think you know in a big picture getting ready for an election campaign i mean it is a huge endeavor to try to coordinate all these different people and you know i'd say in my time uh you know when i think about even 2003 and 2007 you know um especially in 2007 we were talking about the McGinty government getting reelected again there was a lot of good really experienced people who had done those different roles right so we had really fantastic tour director who had done it before we'd had you know all all different people in different roles who are very talented people and a lot of retention of folks who'd worked on the 2003 campaign um, over time, part of the reason sometimes, I mean, there's lots of reasons why governments get elected or not elected, but sometimes when governments have been in too long, you just lose a lot of people who yes. were around when you were victorious, right? And yeah. you're bringing new people in and they haven't had that experience and they haven't learned the things that people who have already worked on campaigns have learned. It's a good point because most people's, you know, political career is usually two terms, maybe three. But, you know, that second term is when, you know, hopefully you still have enough experienced people around to win. But then after that, it gets a little more tricky. Mm -hmm. It's hard on your life. It's a it's a hard <laughs> lifestyle to have. It's exciting. It it's fun. I mean, I started working in politics when I was in my 20s. I lived downtown. I was single. It was awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was in their 20s and lived downtown. And, you know, yeah, but you have a better metabolism at that age, which helps yeah. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you do. And you would work until, I mean, you didn't care if you worked till six or seven at night because no. you would, you would walk out of work with all the people you're working with. And then you'd all go out and get dinner and you'd all go out for a drink and then you wake up and repeat. Right. And so your exactly. whole social life was also your work life. Um, yeah. You know, I ended up, I know, you know, we'll talk a bit about when I left politics, but you know, fast forward and 15 years later for me, I had, you know, two kids. I had gotten married and then divorced. I was living in Markham, not in downtown Toronto, completely different lifestyle. And, you know, being a political staffer and working in politics is, is it's really hard on you. You really have to, it's really fun, but it's over time. It's really hard to, to do that with any longevity. So you're right. It's, it's, uh, there's a big cycle that flows through when you kind of wake up one day and you go, I'm too old. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and then the next generation comes in and if they're lucky, they find great mentors and uh, you try to keep the cycle going. Which is, you know, kind of the point of, of us having this chat right now is, is sort of passing on some of those lessons so younger people can do it. Um, yeah. I want I want to talk about, so, you know, spoiler alert, you guys won that election. Uh, McGinty was elected for a second time. And this is when you made your transition over to government as opposed to the party office. So you yes. went to Queen's Park once more. You became the senior operations advisor in the Ministry of Children and Youth Services then the director of operations in the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, and eventually the senior manager of operations in the Premier's office. Mm -hmm. How did your operations experience at the party office translate to these roles in government? Because operations is something, you know, with a lot of transferable skills, but government is a very different animal than a party office. Yeah, op I mean, operations, I mean, 
at the root of it, it's a lot of logistics, right? It's being a well-organized person and really making sure that things don't fall through the cracks and you're, you know, um, organizing things with precision and detail. Being in, uh, doing operations in a minister's office is really around helping to make sure that, you know, the whole office is running so um, well. So if, if the minister, for example, is going out what we call on tour so they're going out to go meet with stakeholders or to do an announcement or different things like that you're making sure that you know the premier's office knows and you're making sure your comms is coordinating with you know the outreach staff and all of these different pieces you're also kind of overseeing things like um the process for political appointments because that's the purview of the ministers to make political appointments and you know you you're you're overseeing that process you're making sure that there's consideration of really good candidates for those roles um and that just the logistical piece of you know actually appointing someone and signing off on that you're working with ministry officials and and those kind of things so it's um you know a lot of those a lot of those skills come into play um and then it's just every political so again i'm going to say this for the benefit of potentially someone listening to this podcast who hasn't worked in politics you know you've got political staff and you've got ministry officials and ministry officials are the people that don't change they're not partisan they're not a liberal or a conservative or anything they kind of you know run the government on a day-to-day basis and then you've got um political staff who who do the um political side of you know, it's partisan, it's a partisan role. You're there under the pseudonym of a certain political party. And so you're also as in an operations staff in a minister office, you're trying to marry the two worlds, right? You're, you're really trying to, you know, work with the folks who are working on good policy and good government initiatives and all that kind of stuff. And also, you know, the political side of, you know, the political commitments that were made or the not, and I'm not saying like the, I owe somebody something, but I mean a campaign right. promise or something like right. that. Right. Um, and how you navigate those kind of things. So there's, there's a lot to it. Um, and it's, but you know, the logistics piece is important. You really have to be on top of all of that as well in these roles. In my own experience, when I moved over to government, we were just talking about lifestyle and I'm just wondering, you know, moving to government, was that more taxing or less taxing? Um, you know, my, my experience was probably a little different from others, right? Because when I was at the party office, I just said it, I was sort of the young and single and in my, you know, twenties and all that kind of stuff. And, and then my life outside of politics changed over those years. One of the things that is sort of an observation of mine coming out of politics is it's not just the work itself that's taxing it's the culture around right. the sort of expectations of staff and the culture of the way people manage and behave their days so here's what i mean by that when i was working in government my life had changed i was living in markham so i was commuting downtown i was you know i had two kids at home i was a single mom my ex-husband had them every other week so you know i had one week out of every other that I, I didn't have a choice. I couldn't work till seven or eight o'clock at night. I had children at home. I had to get them from daycare and I had to do a long commute home to get it. That really forced, that really was an eye opener for me to force me into, to realizing that a lot of what drains people in, in, in government is like, 
working for the sake of working, like being around for the sake of being around. Yes. I realized, yeah. And I realized like I can get the work done that needs to get done in a day that where I'm arriving at the office at, you know, say eight 30 and I'm leaving by four. Yep. I'm an efficient person. I work hard. I get a lot of work done in a, in a, you know, compressed period of time, but the whole culture makes people feel like they have to sit at their desk until six, seven at night. If they're not just around that, there's a perception that they don't work as hard. So I think you're right. I don't think it is as taxing um, in the work itself, but I think the culture is taxing for people. And it really makes people feel like they have to do a lot of things that are just inefficient that they don't have to do, right? You know, I think my role at the Purdy office, you know, it was communication. So I always used to say it was anything with words, um, which could be a whole manner of things. Uh, But I think it's, you know, similar to the ED role where it's just like so many different things. And it's really, you know, is this one person's job or should multiple people be here doing that work? Whereas in government, I think you have bigger teams, but then having having the public servants there on the non-political side is is such a difference because you know even just coming from the party office and then into government realizing like oh there's other people to help with this like that's just such a a mind-blowing thing that happens yeah you're talking (laughs) about the party office you're talking about like 10 people running the entire and that was when we were in government i mean in opposition it goes down to less because the party has less money right so you're talking about 10 people running the entire ontario liberal party whereas in government now government has a really big job to do but you're talking, you're right, hundreds of ministry officials to support you. You know, the minister's offices I worked in had 10 people in each minister's office, right? Or right, more. Right. So it's just a completely different dynamic. It's like government isn't under-resourced in the same way that a political party is under-resourced. So it's kind of right. incomparable in that way. I agree. You were in those roles and then you took on your last role at the Ministry of Health again, this time as executive director for strategic planning. And then a Mm -hmm. few months later, the McGuinty government, this is in 2011 in the fall, they won re-election for a second time, but this time at a reduced number of seats and they became a minority government. So after almost 15 years of working in politics, which is astounding to me, um, you left and (laughs) (laughs) I just can't even imagine, you left and joined MedTech Canada, which is where you've been working for the last decade. Can you talk about making that transition? I think this is an interesting yeah. one for, you know, recovering <laughs> political. <laughs> How do you make that transition back to, you know, private sector, public sector, the normal sector, I will call it. Yeah. And yes. Yes. how do you make that transition? And what was that like, uh, you know, after so long in politics? Yeah. So I actually left in June of, uh, of the 2011 election year. So I left actually three or four months before the election. Right, it was a, a very, del- it was a very deliberate choice. I talked about it before, but you know, had you know, since gotten married, divorced, two kids, single mom, and um, you know, had just decided that the, you know, that it wasn't prudent <laughs> to have a career <laughs> that was dependent on the population of Ontario deciding every four years whether I'd have a job or not. Right. So right, you know, right. you can lose elections, win elections, and the lifestyle itself, and all the things we've already talked about. So. I did not know what I wanted to do. I had no clue. I'm not a planner. Everything I've done in my career, I've sort of fallen into it. The only thing I knew, I knew a few things. I knew I wanted to do something that made me feel like I could make a difference in the world. That's part of my core values. And no matter what I do in life, that's what I want to do for work. I knew I wanted to do something that was um, 
matched the 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 life I was living. You know, I wanted work life balance. But at the same time, I am very career oriented and very career driven. So I wanted to be challenged and I wanted something that was meaningful and I could work really hard at and do really well at um, and be career focused. But I didn't want something that was conducive to a lifestyle that didn't fit with my family. And I think I'll say this for all the you know single moms out there um, as we're talking about women, when you you know, in my case, I have 50-50 custody with my ex-husband and um, and we have a great relationship. We parent really well together. But when you realize that your children now are only going to be spending 50% of their lives growing up with you, um, it's you don't want to give up that your time with them. You just don't want to give them up. You know, uh, I needed to be in an environment and 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 work for somebody, frankly, that understood that. And so I... First, I took six months off to figure out to well to spend with my kids, and then really decide what I wanted to do. My kids were very young when I got divorced; they were like two and four. So, spend some time with them, and then really thinking through and taking my time to find what I wanted. I had some really great mentors and women in particular who spent time with me, helping me understand what my deal breakers were, what my and then and then not panicking <laughs> and taking the first job that came along because I would be afraid that I wouldn't get a job. Right. So yeah. we, you know, a lot of women lack confidence, you know, um, not that there's not a lot of confident women out there, but you know, in the workplace, it's, you know, it's, it's more challenging, I think, from a confidence perspective. So I had a lot of great women that really told me like, you know, be confident in your skills and your abilities, you know, You've always been really successful at what you did. You'll be successful at what you do next. Don't compromise for the thing. So I didn't want to commute. I didn't want a long commute. I, I was fine being off a highway, but there was no way I was working down right, right. I want a good salary. I want a work-life balance, all of these different things. So I work for um, the medical technology industry. And there was another former political staffer who had now gone to do a government relations role in a medical device company. And I ran into them at like a, you know, you still go to all the liberal events sometimes like the, sure. it was like a John Turner book launch or something. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to go into fundraising, if I want to go into, you know, um, government relations, I'm not sure. And he said, well, our industry association is looking to create a government relations role. Um, you know, you should put your name in. I said, okay, I put my name in. I didn't know anything about MedTech Canada at all. <laughs> I got a call for the interview and <clears throat> I went to the interview and I really didn't think this was going to be the job for me. Uh, not because I, you know, I didn't think it was an interesting role, but I'd never heard of the organization. I'd worked in the minister of health office. I hadn't heard of the organization. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how I'd be a fit. And at the time I met, the person I was interviewed by the person who had become my boss, somebody named Brian Lewis. And I was very lucky at Queens Park to have worked for Deb Matthews. And I all I know the value of working for somebody that shares your values and yes. how important that is. And so when I met Brian, I put it right out there in the beginning about, you know, my kids. And I said, you know what? I'm I'm somebody who works really hard, but this is me when I have my kids, I can't, you know, do things evening and weekends when I don't have them, I have more flexibility for travel or whatever. 
Um, that was one of the things I talked about. And then more talking about the passion behind, you know, Brian did a really good job talking to me about the medical technology industry and what the industry did to save lives and change lives. And, you know, I just, I walked away from there and I thought, you know, um, this is a human being that I would love to work for. And this is an industry that I feel like I would wake up every day and feel like I was making a positive difference in people's lives. So that was it. That was, that was what it was about for me. I, I tried to keep a really open mind. And I guess my advice to people is, you know, keep an open mind, be confident in your own skills and abilities and seek out those mentors and, and the advice of other people who can help you understand better what kind of roles would be a good fit. You know, we, we've talked a, a bit about some of the advice that we would give people, but I, I want to pivot to what advice you give to other women, especially young women who want to get involved in politics, either as a volunteer or a staffer. You know, we've talked about working hard for purpose, not for show. What are some mm -hmm. of the other pieces of advice you, you give to young women right now looking into this space? Yeah, so I got I got two pieces, one one a little more specific to what I do and then just general advice sort of for women out there. So when it comes to the the piece around MedTech Canada, so a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about medical devices, although I think the pandemic really changed that. I think, yeah. you know, in COVID, everybody started to realize, I mean, this is the industry that makes PPE and ventilators and tests and yep. all of those kind of things. And a whole swath of really incredible technologies that dramatically change people's lives, save lives, create efficiencies in the healthcare system, you know, can save money in the healthcare system, all of these really phenomenal things. So the first piece is the piece about find your passion, right? I know, you know, if somebody would asked me before I started MedTech Canada, are you passionate about medical devices? I might probably would have been like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, I don't, you know, Am I passionate, passionate about MRIs or pacemakers? I, I don't know. But, but I did know that what I was passionate about was making a difference, like feeling like what I did right. was important and it mattered and it made other people's lives better. So first it's find that broad passion, right? Like what, what really drives you and makes you feel good about what you do every day? Because um, there is nothing worse in life than waking up and doing a job that you just, you know, that, that doesn't fulfill that piece of you. Right. So that's what I'd say on, on one side of the equation, the other side. So, uh, anyone who knows me well knows I love hockey. I've played hockey my whole life. I played hockey since I was eight years old and I coached my son and my stepson in hockey and I am a hockey player and fanatic and all of these different things. So I went to go see Haley Wickenheiser speak a number of years ago. Amazing. Yeah. And it was awesome. And for those who don't know, Haley Wickenheiser, I always say, yeah, she's the best female hockey player in the world, but she's also like probably one of the, just the best, one of the best hockey players in the world. Right. But she was on team Canada, gold medal, all that stuff. She's now, um, uh, actually she's now the, uh, assistant, uh, GM for the Leafs, but she was one of the player development coaches for the Leafs. She's an incredible, and she's a doctor, like she's amazing, but in her <laughs> In her talk, she gave advice, and this is so true. She said, what really made a difference for her was find your champions, right? Find those people who support you, who see in you a lot of the skills and abilities that maybe you know you have, but, or, or maybe you don't, you maybe don't have that confidence in you, right? I was very lucky to have a, a number of different um people along the way in my career 
that were my champions. And your champions will say to you the things that you don't say to yourself. And women are particularly guilty of this, right? There's always sort of the questioning and the doubt and all that kind of stuff. It, it, honestly, it wasn't until much later in life that I realized like to follow my intuition and, you know, um, and, and follow my gut and be confident in my decisions. But your champions will tell you, you know, to be confident in your decisions and be confident in your skills. So my advice to women in general is find your champions, surround yourself with the people who bring you up. They don't tear you down. They see in you the things that, you know, are of value and they help and support you along the way. And that's going to make all the difference in the world. That's how you're going to be successful. I couldn't agree more given you <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, you are incredible. So it's an easy task. <laughs> yes. I, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining me today, Nicole. Oh, thank you. Sisters Can podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Lubowitz. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer, Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer, Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.